you would please follow along, I'll read, starting at verse 20 and going on to 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So, the saying spread abroad among the brothers. This disciple was not to die. Yet, Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thank the Lord this morning for his holy word. I mentioned earlier that this is our last sermon in the Gospel of John, and so for me that marks a very special Sunday in my own heart, um, and a great moment perhaps to just express thankfulness to each of you for um, the privilege of getting to share God's word with you every Sunday morning. I hope that it's a help to you, but if not, I know it's at least a joy for me. <laughs> and it's a great privilege, and I'm so thankful. And it's at these kind of moments where I can kind of look back and go, man, we, we've gone through this whole book together. And, and I'm just filled with gratitude this morning to get to close John's gospel out from the pulpit. So thank you for allowing me to do this. Our title this morning is Pursuing Christ in His Many Works, an attempt to squish everything that's going on in these last verses together into a sentence. What John shows us, Peter being called to by Jesus, and, and his closing mentioning of, of all the many works of Christ. And so our call is just simply to pursue Jesus on the unique journey that he has mapped out for you. Now, the word follow is obviously very important in this passage, right? This is the correction and the repetition of the passage we read last week, um, where Jesus had very clearly said to Peter, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he ended his section with explaining what would happen to Peter, what would his ultimate destiny be, and how would he glorify God. And his last words in the last section were, Follow me. We're going to see how Peter kind of gets a little confused with that and how that might inform our walks as well. But I wanted to take this word follow and I wanted to perhaps use another word that we don't use so much in, in terms of following Christ, but I think is appropriate. And so that's where this word pursue is being injected into the sermon, as it were. Pursue Jesus on the unique journey that he has mapped out for you. What an encouraging thought to consider. The sovereign God over all things has not left you to yourself, to your own devices, to plan out your own course. The book of Proverbs tells us that in a man's heart he charts his course, but the Lord guides his steps. You have made plans for Sunday afternoon. Maybe the snow has faltered some of those plans here or there. You've got plans for the week ahead. 
You've got plans for the next month, perhaps. Maybe into the next years you have plans. Go ahead and make those plans. But know that the Lord guides your steps. As he is sovereign over the plans that we make in our own hearts. And he's calling us from his word. And particularly at the, the end of this gospel of John. To pursue Christ. Again, that word pursue. Pursuing something is the activity of driven people. When you are driven about something, you don't simply consider it. And perhaps you don't even just sort of walk along a path to reach it. But if you're driven about something, you pursue it. I looked up this word in the dictionary after already settling on the outline and printing the bulletins and had a little moment of panic when I realized that one definition for pursue is to chase hard after something as though to attack it. And I thought, well, I hope this is not the definition that we need to work off of. But it is one definition, right? It's a definition, it's a word that you could use for a hunter pursuing his prey to do what? To attack it, right? It's kind of funny, you know, certainly, I don't know, hunting, is hunting season going on right now? People hunting? Okay. It happens at some point, right? <laughs> Before or after right now. And, and typically, I know hunting today is about finding a nice tree, climbing up that tree and staying there and waiting. Again, we talked about fishing in the past couple weeks. I can't imagine hunting is uh, all that more exciting for the bulk of the time, right? The moment that you're looking forward to with hunting is when you see the prey, right? And you draw the bowstring or you load your rifle, whatever it might be, in preparation to do what you had came to do, come to do. Certainly we're not talking about pursuing Christ to the point of attacking him. But there are other definitions for pursuit which have to do with drivenness. They have to do with an overwhelming zeal to reach some target, some goal, some checkered flag at the end. And so we pursue what we're passionate about. We pursue what means a lot to us. And when hunting season happens, and that relative of yours that must go on that first day of hunting to get that buck, and you go, dude, there's so many other things we could do this week. <laughs> but they're driven. And you ask, well, what is so exciting about sitting up in a tree for so long? Or maybe we could bring ice fishing into this again. I have to amend another thing I said. The only, a couple weeks ago, I said the only thing that was more boring than fishing was not catching anything, but I think ice fishing is even more challenging in that regard, right? Because it's cold. You know, you can tell who are the serious fishermen in wintertime. And I loved, with my dad, um, whenever we would drive growing up, um, past the Magador Reservoir, where there was a bridge we would go on almost every day. And we loved watching to see who was out there, like, like the people that might be out there on a day like today, where who knows how frozen the reservoir might actually be, but they're there, right? And you kind of go, like, I don't know, there's something crazy about those people. But they love what they're doing. They're going after it. They're pursuing it. And, and as crazy as you might think a fisherman or a hunter might be for their patient waiting for their target, the world looks at Christians and thinks you're even crazier for following someone who is crucified and supposedly is risen again, but you've never even seen him with your own eyes. Nevertheless, we pursue what we are passionate about. 
Perhaps the things we pursue are things like position or power, success or satisfaction. Maybe it's just stuff. But I wonder this morning if you might ask at the place of your heart as we did last week, do you love Christ? Are you following him? And does your following Christ look like a pursuit of Christ? Or is it a casual stroll? Again, in this passage, Jesus is reiterating and correcting Peter, you follow me. That is the most important thing for you right now. Clearly, some things will take our eyes off of Christ if following him is not our true goal, our true pursuit. Perhaps if we make it just a casual objective. In light of my life and all the things going on, I might also like to follow Jesus. See, this is a lot of what you hear from non-believers that might look at Christ and say, I like this guy. It seems like he has some things for me that I might consider for my own life and attach to my own goals. And a problem that we get with that as Christians is that often we think, well, this is such a great avenue for evangelism is to convince people that, hey, you should be a Christian because it's the most beneficial thing to do. I don't think you could lie to a non-believer in any worse way. We follow a crucified Lord, church, right? We don't follow Jesus simply because he knows how to enhance our lives. And yet this message is being proliferated all across the world, really. So many are believing that, boy, if I could just figure out the formula of God's word, how to apply it to my life and to my goals, I think I'll get everything sorted out. But following Christ is what we are called to do with him as our ultimate goal. In the Greek, this word follow, uh, the Greek lexicon that is, says that this word means to cleave steadfastly to one. Conform wholly to his example in living and if need be in dying also. You remember what Jesus included in his message to Peter. When you were young, you used to get up, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you will get up and someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. John explains to us that it was in this way that Jesus explained to Peter the way his death would glorify God. Church, it is not the right motive for us in our evangelistic effort to the lost to try to draw people in with an attractive message. And this is how we know, in part, that we truly believe. When we recognize that, the gospel is not an attractive means of enhancing your life. The gospel is a means of following one who calls you, as we read earlier, to take up your own cross. And then if we're not willing to do that, we're not worthy of him. Let's consider an outline for this passage. In verse 20, as this passage opens, we have Peter. He's been reunited with Christ. He's reconciled. Things are going well. He's got his commission. He's going to feed the sheep. He's going to take care of those whom Jesus loves. Wonderful, wonderful message. Wonderful consideration. But no sooner had Jesus said the words, follow me, than we get in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus, fo- whom Jesus loved following them. I mean, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Jesus says, follow me. Next words, Peter turned. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was like that. And, and no, this wasn't a turning in the way that he denied the Lord three times. But do you recognize perhaps even in your own heart with Peter how easy it is to hear these words, follow Christ, and then to turn right as soon as you hear those words almost. Now, Peter turns back. He looks at John. He sees John's following after them. 
And John puts this note in here, which seems almost out of place. I needed a lot of help in figuring out why John said this this week. But John says, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which that's, that's normal, right? We've seen that in the Gospel of John. John describes himself in that way a lot. But then he says, he's also the one whom, who leaned back against Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Why in the world would he bring up that detail? Well, smarter people than me think it's because John is pointing out the close relationship between himself and Peter. So if you think back to that in chapter uh, 13, um, what you'll find is Peter actually giving a signal to John to ask that very question that John mentions here. So he's hearkening back to that moment where Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me tonight. And Peter, sitting on the other side of the table, apparently looks over at John and says, ask him, what's going on? So John's saying, hey, the reason that Peter looked back at me in this moment, John says, is because we had a close connection. We were close there. We lived for three years together, and before that, they might have known each other for years as fishermen. Peter looks back, and in verse 21, after, after seeing him, he says, Lord, what about this man? Now, surfacey reading of this that I started the week off with might lead us to say, boy, Peter, Jesus lays out your life so clearly and so plainly, and you're just so concerned about knowing about other people. What a nosy guy. But if it's true that verse 20 appeals to the idea of the closeness between Peter and John, then this isn't necessarily a, a sort of comparison game or a jealousy or, or any kind of like Peter wanting to control necessarily, though these, those kind of things may come from this, but it comes from a heart of concern. I love John. You're telling me that at the end of my life, I'm going to be crucified for you. What's going to happen to John? Part of me doesn't want to have that happen to him. I'm willing to accept whatever it means to follow Jesus, but I'm concerned for my brother. It's a very tender moment at the end of the gospel here. And that really fits in with really the whole of chapter 20 being such an intimate setting between Jesus and his disciples, this great epilogue of the gospel of Jesus. Peter loves John. He cares about him. But Peter gets a surprising response. Because Jesus doesn't seem to say, hey, look, I know you love John. I know that he's really important to you. Don't worry. No, Jesus kind of rebukes him, doesn't he? Do you kind of hear the sting in Jesus' voice? If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In modern vernacular, he's saying, mind your own business. Yikes. If it is my will, Jesus is the one who is sovereignly laying out the unique journeys that he has decided for his disciples. Yeah, we're all to follow Christ. We're, this is not a, a plea for, hey, at the end, we'll all end up at the same place, but we're going to go different routes. No, we all must stay on the narrow way, but we're going to face different challenges. Our stories are going to sound a little bit different, though they're going to begin and end with, Jesus said, follow me, and I followed him. But Jesus tells Peter, stop worrying about John for a second, and remember what I just said to you. Follow me. You follow me. He adds that uh, pronoun in the beginning of the second time. He had already said, follow me. Now he's saying, Peter, you follow me. Mind your own business. Jesus also lays out the timetable for the church in verse 22 here. It's very appropriate at the end of the gospel for us to be considering that Jesus is going to come back. That the end is not the end in your Christian life. Really, there is no end anymore. Right? Right? 
When you put your faith in Christ, when you're born again, the end is gone. It's just moving on to the next thing. Because eternity is not an end, it's really the beginning. I love what the psalmist says, that when I awake, I will be in your presence. And this this picture of almost waking from a dream is how we should think of eternity, how we should think about God's new creation. In verse 23, we see the disciples confused. How easily the church attaches to poor understanding so often. Very easy for us to read things at surface level and go, what? So they all believed for a little while, it seems, that John wasn't going to die. That he was going to remain for what we know now is millennia before Jesus actually returns. Peter clears that up. Verses 24 through 25, the true ending of John's gospel, the truth of the testimony and the innumerable works of Christ. We know that what he has written is true, John says. He's confident. He's staking his life on who Christ is and what he's communicated. And that in his limited experience, as privileged as he was, can you imagine being the Apostle John? What a wonderful privilege to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. He loves all of his disciples, of course, but to have that that seemingly special relationship, John kind of diffuses that a little bit in verse 25 because he says, look, if everything was written down, the world wouldn't contain the books. In essence, he's kind of saying, my story is just one part of the bigger story. My perspective, all of this, all this truth that I'm giving you, it's just a fragment. Yeah, it's the core fragment. You need this stuff, right? But the unique journey of each saint is laid out by the master with care and consideration. He cares and considers your specific trials. No journeys are replicable. All journeys result in the glory of Christ. If you remember again from the Gospel of John chapter 1, John's testimony begins with, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is what he's calling us to. But Peter shows us our problem, the conflict with this passage. Because if we get stuck pondering the destiny of others, we can very easily take our eyes off of Christ. This is a hard passage, because last week, were we not just thinking about feeding the lambs, tending the sheep, how we need to live in love with one another and not just live solo missions? And it almost could seem like Jesus is here saying, hey, mind your own business. You know, stop worrying about other people and just worry about your own walk with me. You follow me, right? Very easy to misunderstand that. The warning is clear, though. We need to keep our eyes on Christ and not be distracted. When I was a middle school teacher, teacher observation was always the most stressful day of the year. And it was the worst part was that it was usually twice a year, too. And even though the one observing either the principal or the vice principal were ones that I considered great friends and I considered great leaders and I considered that whatever feedback they would give me, I was going to grow and get better as a teacher, it was still really stressful. One of the things I know was always under consideration was how the teacher addressed the entire class and kept the attention of the entire class and kept their attention on the entire class while there are inevitably one or two kids that are going to pop up and become a distraction or need special attention. That's a hard thing to balance in a classroom. 
It's hard to know how to stop and help one person while also making sure that everybody else is on task, but not letting that one person take up all your time and making sure that you're equipping them to do well and not just you know, holding their hand through everything and making it easy. And I kind of wonder, in one sense, maybe this applies to leaders, maybe it just applies to all of us as the church, that if Christ observes our life and how we interact with one another, and our priority of keeping our eyes on Christ, is that shining through as we relate to one another? Again, this is tricky. Love the church. Live your Christian life in the church. Be a nourishing part of a larger whole. And yet in that, don't let church become Christ in your mind. Again, Peter turned immediately after these words, you follow me. But he turned with, a, with an affection, right? He could say, we don't get the rest of the conversation here, but I almost imagine Peter going, Jesus, I think you misunderstand me, <laughs> right? Which is not a good way to start prayer, is it? Right? I don't think you're getting something here, Lord. Well, let me bring something to your attention. It might have been that Peter had thought, look, I love John. I care about him. You just told me to feed the sheep. I want to make sure that I'm taking care of a sheep. And I want to start with John, because he means a lot to me, and I know he means a lot to you. Feeding the sheep shouldn't take our direction away from Christ. Otherwise, we feed them what they don't actually need. We'll be giving them other things. And this is very easy. I use the example of pastoral ministry. It's very easy when you sit down with somebody, and you're saying, hey, what's going on in life? Tell me what your struggles are. What can, how can I help you? Those kind of things. To think so practically and so unchrist centered in the advice that we give. Right? I mean, on the other hand, you don't want to, especially with your non-believing friends, when they come up to you and say, boy, I'm just going through a hard time, and the finances are difficult, or there's sickness in the family. You certainly don't want to just sit there and go, well, you don't believe in Jesus, so what do you think is going to happen? Because that's not our message, is it? Jesus doesn't just get rid of all our sicknesses right away. We read in Psalm 103 earlier that he does heal all of our diseases. But he also sends those diseases. He's also sovereignly in control of every trial that we face. And if we leave Jesus out, all we're going to come to is a need for advice that helps us work through the problem and put it in our past and act as though it never happened. Christ has more in store for his people than that. His desire is that we not lose sight of Jesus in the midst of whatever we are facing. That's Jesus' correction to Peter. Don't turn away from following me, even in the name of doing what I've called you to do. Church, that is tricky, right? Even in the name of trying to do right things. I mean, think about like social activism in the world. Like right now, you know, we, we think a lot about um, social justice. We hear that term a lot. And, and it's, it's certainly true that Christians could join in an event that is meant to support a marginalized people and do so in the name of a God who created those people in his image. And yet their hearts could be far from Christ. We could do that when we enter the voting booth. I'm voting a certain color because I'm voting Jesus. It may not, in fact, honor Christ to just go through the motions in those ways if our eyes are not truly set on him entirely, if we are not truly pursuing him actively, zealously. See, John is leaving us with a hard call, very, very hard call at the end of his gospel. 
There's so much wonderful Christology in the Gospel of John. So many wonderful things to learn about Jesus as a person. And in the end here, we're called, again, to consider this idea of following and pursuing Christ. Well, as I'm thinking about this word pursuing, I had to go to my buddy A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. And in it, in the first chapter, he says that to have found God and still to pursue him is a paradox of love. To have found God and still pursue him. The reason that's a paradox is because who looks for what they've already found? right? Who pursues what they've already caught? If something is in your possession, you're not saying, I'm going after this thing, right? Pursuing Christ is obviously different. And it's a paradox, as Tozer calls it, that we need to embrace. So he goes on and says, scorned indeed, this idea of pursuing God, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religious person. That is, that if we come to a place where we say, I've reached a spiritual plateau, I'm here where I think I need to be, no more growth is necessary, I vote a certain way, I walk in the right marches, I say the right things, I do all these things well, I don't really need to grow, I don't really need to pursue Christ any longer. Tozer says that those people scorn the idea of pursuing Jesus. They laugh at it, they mock it, they reject it because they're too easily satisfied as a religious person. But justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. A wonderful question for us as a follow-up from last week. Do you love Christ? Does your heart burn to know him more? I love that Tozer used this word because it draws me back to the Gospel of Luke. You remember those disciples after Jesus resurrected? He appeared and walked with them for a long time, explained from all the book of Moses that the Messiah had to be crucified and to rise again. And then when he disappears, and they're like, I think that was Jesus, right? It's a pretty hilarious moment. They didn't even know it was him the whole time. And the reason they recognized it was him was because they said, did not our hearts, what, burn within us? Was it not true that in the pursuit of knowing Christ and all of this teaching he was giving us and this enlightenment of what the plan of God was, did our hearts not burn for more? The pursuit of God cannot just simply be reaching some spiritual plateau and saying, I've arrived use poor grammar here to say with emphasis you ain't never gonna arrive it will not happen this side of eternity pursue christ this is a good warning because if we are satisfied with our pace and not quickening our pace we will inevitably take our eyes off of jesus and again like peter we might take our eyes off of jesus for a right reason well, I'm feeding the flock. I'm doing the Christian-y things I'm supposed to do. Yeah, you could do the Christian life in a way that looks like you're doing the Christian life, and yet do it without Christ. Do it without the goal of actually pleasing Him, without that burning heart. If that's the case, and we are not dissatisfied in one sense with our limited knowledge of Christ, our limited relationship with Christ, as it were, we'll inevitably take our eyes off of him. We'll either justify ourselves among ourselves or we'll embrace hopelessness in comparison. Either we will take our eyes off of Christ and say, you know, I can look at the rest of the people in my church and I can see how I'm doing way better than them. And I really don't need them. 
And in saying you don't need the church, what you're actually saying is you don't need Christ. Because he's made you a part of the church. He's made you to be part of his body. So, if we are doing that, if we take our eyes off of Christ by slowing the pace and becoming content with where we are, we'll either justify ourselves among ourselves or we'll embrace hopelessness in comparison. We will look at others and say, I'm never going to be where all of you are. So what's the point? I've been a Christian for a decade, for two decades. I've been a Christian for most of my known life. I'm not growing at all. What's the point? The point is that the pursuit of Christ is the burning heart desire of those who truly know him. And they are not satisfied with any degree of knowledge, any degree of intimacy, until they see him face to face. Your faithfulness is required in this church. Your example of keeping your eyes on Christ is what we need. It's what I need. We need to share in this goal that that when we come to each other in the Christian life with our trials or with, with some project or something, we need to be gathering together as those who are saying, yeah, let's look to Christ. Let's fix our eyes on him as we do this. Let's not go through the motions. Let's forget about the motions. And let's fix our eyes fully on Christ. I believe that the enemy's work in the church to help us lose sight of Christ, something that we're unfortunately blind to in so many ways. Because again, a lot of this is happening inside of the context of church. And that you can go about church life and go home and think, cool, I did it, it's great, everything's fine. But the enemy's work in the church to help us lose sight of Christ may be a temptation to make decisions or to take actions based on what other people think. I'm not going to follow Christ until I see somebody else doing it in some other way, and I'm going to measure, and I'm going to figure all these things out, and I'm going to find out, and this is one of the biggest temptations. Let me find the bare minimum. Where can I find the minimum to like the zealous pursuit of Christ? Because I certainly don't want to look like some people that I know. <laughs> some people that I know that don't talk about anything besides Jesus, and it's annoying don't want to be like those people. But I also don't want to be like those lukewarm people that never say anything about him. So how can I find like a nice spot in the middle? I think this is where passages like what we get um, in the book of Revelation to the church in Laodicea. Do you remember? He said that you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, just for a little context, Laodicea was a city that was set in the middle of two other cities, one to the north that had hot springs that would go down to Laodicea, and one to the south that had cool springs that would spring up to Laodicea. But as the hot water got to Laodicea and as the cold water got to Laodicea, they were lukewarm by the time they got there. So it became this great illustration for Christ to say, look, you're like this water. You're neither hot nor cold, and so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And that's what we're in danger of if we're looking for like that middle ground where we can be like a little bit like the world and a little bit like Christ. Not too much like Christ, not too much like the world. That's lukewarmness. That's not a burning heart. And the enemy would love for us to fall to that temptation day after day. Secondly, and another, another work of the enemy in the church is to make much of ourselves in relations to other, relation to others rather than making much of Christ. This is an obvious one when we think about it that we might look at someone else and consider we're, we're far superior to that person. Thirdly, we may compare the blessings or spiritual maturity of others to our own and fumble because of that. 
that would have been a very easy thing for Peter in the back of his mind to be thinking. Again, we said this was maybe surfacy, but it might also have been true too. That when he was asking about John, he might have been thinking like, well, is he going to be crucified? Is he going to suffer for the sake of the message of the gospel? It's so easy for us to get caught up in the destiny of others and to take our eyes off of Christ. I believe the way that we get our eyes back on him has to be a work of Christ himself. And it has to be a realization that he brings us into his glorious story at the cross. Because we, we have our journey, we have other people's journeys, we have this comparison game going on, we have all these things to consider that we've already talked about. But Christ wants us to be mindful, first and foremost, of his story, the overarching narrative of Scripture, what he's actually doing. We need to realize that the work of Christ at the cross is the catalyst for our Christian life. The catalyst for your Christian life is not that Tuesday where you go, I'm going to get things together. I'm going to start doing this thing. I'm going to jump on that reading plan that Pastor Nick's been talking about. I'm going to start going to D group. I'm going to... That's not when your Christian life starts. The catalyst, the beginning, is at the cross where Christ took on himself all of your comparison games that you've been playing. When he took on all your pride, when he took on all your wrong concerns and suffered the wrath of God in your place so that we can be confident that because Christ secured justice for our sin at the cross and purchased new life for us, the journey of that new life is just as secure. You are going to plot, you're going to make your plans, but God is going to guide your steps. Your steps are already marked out. He knows, and he loves you. And there will not be, at the end, as it were, a notion that he has done wrong for you in this journey he set you on. The confidence of the saints is that the direction of our lives are sovereignly orchestrated by Christ And he's already shown at the cross his love. He's shown his goodness. He's shown us to be a shepherd leading his sheep to green pastures. But you're going to have to go through the valley of death to get there. And it will be worth it. It may be that what your Christian life needs right now is to simply remember this call to discipleship. You follow Christ. Pursue the Christ we have heard so much of in this Gospel of John. Follow him who is the eternal God over all creation. Follow him who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him who sends his spirit to bring you new birth. Follow him who, in whom are streams of living water for eternal life. Follow him whose words are like none other you'll ever hear. Follow him who is the light of the world and receive the light of life in him. Follow him who opens the eyes of the blind and confess with the man born blind. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Follow him who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Follow him who is the resurrection and the life. Follow him who is the king who washes the feet of those who ought to have served him. Follow him who is the living bread that came down from heaven for you. Follow him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Follow him who is the true vine, apart from whom we can do nothing. Follow him who calls you to ask whatever you need in his name and receive it. Follow him who turns your sorrow to joy. Follow him who is eternal life. Follow him who drank the cup of God's wrath willingly for you. 
Follow him who even under arrest and torture bears witness to the truth. Follow him who battled your sin at the cross and declared it is finished. Follow him who restores betrayers and commissions under shepherds. Follow him whose manifold deeds would fill more than all of creation could contain. So we end at the end of the Gospel of John with a call to testify to his manifold glory and his rule in your life until he returns. That the pursuit of Christ is worthy of your time. That all he has for you, all those things that we just mentioned throughout the Gospel of John, it's worth a reread. It's worth a reread and over and over and over again to pursue and to know him so that we might testify yes, his glory is many in this world. We couldn't contain it in a testimony, we couldn't contain it in a book, we couldn't contain it in the universe. J.C. Ryle, preacher from the 1800s, says, Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by one who is, and you might have heard this before, too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. What a good God we are called to follow. What a shepherd. Too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. Christ was harmed at the cross for you. You might experience difficulty and pain and suffering in this life, but you'll never experience what you deserve for your sins because Christ has taken that for you. Pursuing Christ then will result in testimony. It has to. John shows us that he's been talking about testimony throughout the whole book. And he reminds us here at the end to rest in the gospel, to find that that pursuit will bring us rest. It will bring us satisfaction all the way to the day of his return. And so we can confidently bear witness to the rule of Christ in our lives. Has he been good to you, church? You can testify to the glory of Christ in your life. Have you beheld his glory, that of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth? Because he's proclaimed it to you. Two things to end. Prioritize the pursuit of knowing him and his word. Whether you're battling sin, whether you're difficulty in relating in peace with others, and if you're just simply seeking direction, how often we find ourselves in a place in life where we go, man, I just don't know what the next thing is. The next thing is pursuing Christ. And, and I, I, I try just humbly to say it, it's, it's difficult sometimes to receive it, but whether it's a new job or a new place to live or whatever that difficulty might be, stop and pursue Christ first. Don't go to realtor.com just yet. Pursue Christ. Look for him. Be close to him. And when you meet him, he might not say, hey, thanks for showing up. Here's the house you need to buy, right? He'll probably say, there's something else I've been working on in you. And I want you to follow me and see what that thing is. Prioritize the pursuit of knowing him and recap all he has done. Live just like what John says in here. So many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, the world itself could not contain the books. Your life is one of those books that is not going to be able to contain the whole glory of Christ. But you better fill up the pages, church, because there's a lot to be written down. Pursue him. Testify to him until he returns. He's worthy of that, is he not? Is he not worthy of our zealous pursuit, not just our casual following, is he not worthy of us to lay down our plans and our hopes for his glory? Would you bow your heads with me, please?
Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us. Lord, in the moments where our eyes get caught off track by even good things like taking care of other believers or reaching out to the lost or certain activisms in our lives, whatever it might be, help us to pursue Jesus above all. And Lord, though we know from your word we will only find satisfaction in him, let us also, in the paradoxes Tozer talked about, let us also find a dissatisfaction with everything else, a dissatisfaction with our limited knowledge. We want to grow, Lord. We want to pursue you with passion, with drive, with zeal, and with love. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand, we're going to sing Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. I mean, this is, in one sense, is like the end goal of the pursuit of Christ, to make Jesus yours. May that be true in our hearts this morning as we sing.